You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. The Bible's open to John chapter 18 and verse 28. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Our Father, incline our hearts to your word and open our eyes to the truth that your people may be sanctified by that truth through the work of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit and grant to us attentive hearts and obedient hearts today that you would be glorified amongst us. We thank you for your word and bless this time of study and our understanding in it, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We are in John chapter 18 and we are looking at today starting the third out of the five trials that Jesus endured on the night that he was arrested. This third one is before Pilate, which begins at verse 28. And this whole record of the Gospels of all of these trials and of everything that happened that night is a record of of startling ironies and tremendous injustices. There's a number of injustices that are done. Uh, for instance, there is the injustice that we have the Holy One who is on trial and he is being accused of all kinds of unholiness and sin and wickedness and depravity. There is the injustices of the trials themselves and the lack of witnesses and least agreeing witnesses. There's the injustice of being arrested without cause and without accusation and all of those illegalities that came with the procedures. There's tremendous irony here that the sovereign judge of all of the universe is now standing trial before these paltry human judges. Those same human judges which someday will stand before him and give an account. That's a, something of an irony here. There's the irony that this one who is known as the truth incarnate is now standing before uh, Pilate and being accused of all types of falsehood by liars and by people who uh, were wicked liars at that. And then there is the irony that this one who gave the law to Moses is now being tried before that same law by the very Jews to whom the law was given. All kinds of ironies, all kinds of injustices, and a whole host of illegalities that uh, were also present this evening. We have the fact that he was arrested, which was illegal, without accusation, which was illegal, without accusers, which was illegal, tried by Annas, which was illegal, struck at a trial, which was illegal. The capital trials were held during the night, which was illegal. All of these are illegalities. But the whole thing is, is of course, committed by the Jews for the purpose of trying to lend some thin veneer of legality and legitimacy to the trials of Jesus because they're using that as a cover for their murderous plans. They want to kill him. They have wanted to kill him since... Uh, early in John's Gospel, way back in chapter 5, and they were just using the trials as a veneer to make it look legitimate and to make it look legal. And we've looked so far at two of the five trials. These were the religious trials before Annas and before Caiaphas. And just to review, the trial before Annas is covered in verses uh, 19 through verse 24 or 23 of John 18. John is the only Gospel writer to mention the trial before Annas. He mentions in verse 24 that Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, who was the, actually the official high priest. And that's the second trial. The other synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record the trial before Caiaphas. John doesn't give any details. He skips over that and mentions in verse 28 that they led Jesus from Caiaphas to Pilate. So we have two of them down. The two religious trials are down in a religious context before religious leaders with religious issues at the heart of those trials, before Annas and then before Caiaphas. And now we start the the civil phase of Jesus' trials that evening, the trial before Pilate. And there are, of course, three more stages to these civil trials. Jesus would be questioned before Pilate, which we're going to look at here in a moment. 
And then he would be sent by Pilate to Herod, and which John doesn't mention, but only Luke does. And then he would go from Herod back to Pilate. So those are the three parts of the civil trial before Pilate, then before Herod, and then back before Pilate. So we pick it up now at verse 28. And of all four of the Gospels, though, although all four Gospels mention the trial before Pilate, John gives more detail than any of the other Gospel writers do. All of them mention it, but John gives a tremendous amount of detail, suggesting perhaps that John was an eyewitness to the accounts of this trial, perhaps in the praetorium with Jesus through the course of the evening. And I'm sympathetic to that suggestion because not only of the detail that is mentioned here, uh, but of the, well, I'll get into it later on if I remember it. I won't spoil it now. But John would have been, uh, I think, present through the course of this trial before Pilate. This, the trial before Pilate starts in chapter 18, verse 28, and it goes all the way, if you flip your page, over to chapter 19, verse 16, which is where we are done with the trial before Pilate. That's a lot of detail, 1828 all the way through to 1916. And we have here the interaction between Jesus and Pilate, and the interaction between Pilate and the religious leaders, and the interaction between Pilate and the crowds. So a lot is said and a lot is done here. And of course, if we take Luke into consideration, which we have to, at some point between chapter 18, verse 28, and chapter 19, verse 16, at some point, Pilate sent Jesus to Herod, and Herod then questioned him and sent Jesus back to Pilate. Now, where does that fit into the, the narrative here of John's record of Jesus before Pilate? I would suggest to you that it is in the middle of verse, let me get there, the middle of verse 38. It is after Jesus' discussion of the truth and Pilate's questioning that. In the middle of verse 38, that is when Pilate sent Jesus to Herod, and then Herod eventually would send him back. But we'll look at all that in a couple of weeks. So, we are up now to this uh, trial of Jesus before Pilate. We're going to look today at verses 28 through verse 32. And that doesn't seem like a lot of text to cover, but there are a lot of details there that we need to cover as far as what's going on in the background and uh, why some of these things unfolded the way that they did. So we'll look today at the arrival of the religious leaders to Pilate in verses 28 and 29, and then the accusations of the religious leaders in verses 30 through 32. Their arrival and then their accusations. First their arrival, beginning in verse 28. Read it with me. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early, and they themselves did not enter into the praetorium, so that they would not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. Therefore Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? So Annas and Caiaphas, or maybe just Caiaphas, sent Jesus from Caiaphas off to Pilate. It doesn't seem as if Annas or Caiaphas joined in in any of these deliberations or in any of this trial or any of the accusation, because Annas and Caiaphas sort of disappear from the narrative at this point. So this is probably Pharisees, chief priests, other religious leaders that took Jesus from Caiaphas and brought him to Herod. Annas and Caiaphas from this point had just turned Jesus over, uh, not to Herod, I said Herod, Pilate, had turned Jesus over to Pilate with the intention that Pilate, of course, would have Jesus executed and, and they would be able to wash their hands of this. Uh, so they're not in this part of the of the narrative at all. They have sent Jesus off to Pilate. They took Jesus to Pilate and they led Jesus into the praetorium. But you'll notice that Pilate says or that John says that they themselves did not go into the praetorium. Now, what is the praetorium? What is that? What is a praetorium? If you're reading the King James, it might not even say praetorium. It might say judgment hall or hall of judgment or common hall. And if you're reading the NIV, it might be translated as palace. I can't remember if it's at this location that the NIV translates it as palace or, or not. The praetorium, originally the, the word praetorium was used to describe the tent of a general on the field of battle for the Romans. So whoever was the leading magistrate or the leading Roman general in the army, his tent was called the praetorium. It comes from the Latin word praetor, which means a, like a magistrate or a ruler or a leader of people. 
Over the course of time, praetorium, the word praetorium came to be used of the official residence of any Roman magistrate. It could be a king or a governor or any kind of, a, of an official like that. It would be their royal residence. So when they brought Jesus to the praetorium, they brought Jesus into the residence of Pilate. Now, there are two possible locations in Jerusalem where this could have unfolded. There is the traditional location, and then there is the likely location. And for some reason, Christians went through this period of time in history when uh, they liked relics and icons and all of those things, and uh, they would find some place that would roughly fit the description of Scripture, and they would build a church over it. And they would say, this is where this happened. And then everybody who came there, of course, would see this and have their sins absolved and uh, take years off of purgatory by visiting the spot and kissing the stone or the rock or the step or whatever that this happened on. So there is the traditional location, and then there is the actual, probably most likely location, though I cannot be sure location. First, the traditional location is in or outside of what was uh, called the Fortress Antonia. Fortress Antonia. That was a Roman fortress in the northwest corner of the temple complex. And so the, the massive wall that encompassed the temple mount uh, that enclosed the court of the Gentiles, in the northwest corner of that was a fortress, Fortress Antonia. And there was a barracks there. There were Roman guards that were stationed there. Those Roman guards, of course, the number of them would be increased during feasts and festivals and times like this, the Passover, because there would be a lot of people, a lot of activity inside the temple. And that is uh, where some of the Roman leaders would, would uh, sleep and stay. That in that fortress, and this is the same fortress, by the way, that in Acts, I think it's chapter 22 or 23, one of them, where Paul is arrested inside the temple and they drag him away and the crowds are beating him and the Roman commander came down and rescued Paul and took him up and he was ushering him into the barracks to whip Paul and trying to get a confession out of him. And Paul stood on the steps of the barracks and addressed the Jews in the Hebrew dialect. I think that's Acts chapter 23. That's the very same fortress. Well, outside of that is a pavement, a large pavement area. And you'll notice in chapter 19, verse verse 13, chapter 19, verse 13, that there was a pavement out there, which is kind of the, the public area outside of the praetorium. Uh, there's a pavement there to this day that there is a convent of the sisters hood of Zion is built over this pavement. So traditionally, that is the location on the Temple Mount. Most likely, this all transpired at Herod's palace which is a different location on the western side of Jerusalem. Historically, we know that any time Roman officials were in Jerusalem, that they were living there, they would stay at Herod's palace. So this probably happened at uh, Herod the Great, the same Herod the Great mentioned in the beginning of the Gospels. Uh, that Herod, he had built a massive palace on the western side of, of uh, Jerusalem. That Herod, uh, that Herod's palace is probably where this took place. So that's where Pilate would have lived, and that's probably the Praetorium. All right, so you'll notice that John says this happened early in the morning. They went to the praetorium and it was early in the morning. Now, that word early in the morning, it can be taken in a very strict, uh, specific, technical sense. It can also be taken generally to describe a period of time. If John is using this in its technical sense, that word for early in the morning, he is describing the fourth watch of the night, which was between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. Now, I have a harmony of the Gospels, which places all of the events that we are about to read in the trial before Pilate at 5 o'clock in the morning. If John is using it in just a general sense, that it probably happened somewhere around 6 or maybe shortly after 6 a.m. Now, you say that's awfully early for a Roman official to be getting up in the morning, right? John MacArthur writes this. Roman officials often began their duties at dawn and finished by late morning. So there's no reason why the Jewish leaders could have brought Jesus to Pilate before 6 a.m. Now, it's difficult for us to imagine a government official starting their duties at dawn Right. And being done with an eight hour workday by late in the morning, we're most more likely to think of them starting late in the morning and ending late in the morning. But this is a long, long time ago in a land far, far away. And this is how they did it. They would get up by dawn and at the crack of dawn, they would begin their duties. So it is very likely that they would have brought Jesus before Pilate 
even as early as 5 o'clock in the morning, and this would have been when business would have been normally being conducted. Keep in mind that the Jewish leaders expected Pilate to rubber stamp their decision and execute Jesus. That was what they were expecting him to do. Pilate had dispatched the guards to arrest Jesus, and Caiaphas and Annas, their expectation is that they would deliver him. Pilate would rubber stamp it, and they would have Jesus executed and hanging on a cross before anybody in Jerusalem became all the wiser. They wanted to do this before the crowds could hear what was going on because the crowds were the bulk of the people who had seven days earlier sung Hosanna to the King of David or to the Son of David, the King of Israel. Most of those crowds were not in favor of this. So the, their idea was to get this all happening before, before the crowds really woke up and became aware of what was going on. So it happened early in the morning. Now look at what John says. They themselves did not enter into the praetorium. So they brought and delivered him to the front door of Pilate's residence. Pilate brought him into the praetorium inside the residence itself. And the religious leaders stood outside. They stood outside so that they might not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. This raises a number of questions for us. Number one, why would entering a Gentile home defile the Jewish leaders? Second, how is it that then they would be kept from eating the Passover if they were defiled? And third, why had the Jewish religious leaders not eaten the Passover yet on a Friday morning when Jesus had eaten the Passover on Thursday night? In other words, who was not following the law? Was it the Jewish leaders who should have eaten it on Thursday night? Or did Jesus sin by not eating the Passover on the right day and having it on Thursday night instead? How do we deal with those issues? Let me address all three of those kind of issues that are raised here. First, why would entering a Gentile home defile them? Why would that defile them? Uh, this What's being described here is ceremonial uncleanliness uh, that you read about in the Old Testament in the Levitical law and in Numbers. Um, there were a number of ways in which a Jew could become ceremonially unclean and therefore unfit or unable to participate in some of the religious and ceremonial aspects of, of Judaism. Uh, one of them was by touching a dead body. So you go back to Numbers chapter 19, verses 11 and 12, where we read, The one who touches the corpse of any person shall be unclean for seven days. That one shall purify himself from uncleanliness with the water on the third day and on the seventh day, and then he will be clean. But if he does not purify himself on the third day and on the seventh day, then he will not be clean. So a Jew could become defiled for seven days and then be unable to participate in any of the religious life of the people for seven whole days if they came in contact with a dead body. How does that fit in with Pilate's residence? Well, it was believed by the Jews that Gentiles disposed of aborted babies, miscarried babies, and dead babies, and, and body parts, and etc., in the drains of their house and in the pots. And so the Jewish rabbis believed that just entering into a Gentile home was enough to defile you for seven days. So they would stay out of this. There was nothing in, in Scripture, in the law, that required that they not enter a Gentile home and thus be defiled. But because they, of what they believed about what Gentiles did in their home, they would not be able to go in. So the religious leaders stopped at the front door. And they wouldn't go in. And they believed that if they walked in there, they would be unable to eat the Passover. In Numbers chapter 9, there is a um, there is an exception or a, a provision given in the event that somebody was defiled by inadvertently touching a dead body during Passover. In Numbers chapter 9, God commanded the nation of Israel to celebrate the Passover on the 14th day of the first month. And so Moses instituted this and the nation began to celebrate it. And a group of men came to Moses and they were defiled because of a dead body. So they knew that they couldn't participate in the Passover. And so this group of men asked Moses, we've been defiled because of a dead body. Now what do we do? And the Lord gave a provision to Moses and he said, in the event that this happened, these men are not to observe the Passover, but they are to wait until the 14th day of the second month. And then they are to observe the Passover. So they would observe the Passover one full month later. So it appears that the religious leaders were trying to avoid having to do that. 
that they wanted to participate in this Passover and so they wouldn't go into the Gentile home, lest they be ceremonially defiled. Now, the second question. How is it that defilement would keep them from eating the Passover? Because they would be defiled by seven days, at least by their views, they wouldn't be able to participate in that. That's an easy one to answer. And now the third question, that's a bit more difficult. Why is it that the Jewish religious leaders were celebrating the Passover on Friday night instead of Thursday night, and Jesus was celebrating it on Thursday night instead of Friday night? Now, I actually answered this question back in John chapter 13 when we looked at Jesus uh, celebrating the Passover. Uh, I don't expect you to remember that because I don't remember what I said to you, and I preached it, so I had to go back and look this up again. And there are a couple of different uh, explanations as to how this happened and why this happened. It's neither Jesus nor the religious leaders that are necessarily sinning by having it on different nights. And here's why. Jews, back in the age before you could look at your tablet or your phone or a, a wristwatch, people reckoned time differently. The Jews in the northern part of the nation of Israel reckoned t- days and counted days differently than the Jews in the southern part of the nation of Israel. Jews in the north, where Jesus and 11 of his 12 disciples were from, Galilee, Capernaum, Nazareth, etc., they counted days from sunup to sunup, from sunrise to sunrise. The Jews in the southern part of the kingdom counted days and reckoned days from sunset to sunset. So you had two different ways of reckoning days. That would, for some Jews, put the observance of the Passover meal on a Thursday night. For other Jews, it would put the observance of the meal on the Friday night. Now, they didn't, they didn't make a lot out of that. They didn't bicker about that or argue over that because it became very convenient when there are two and a half million Jews in the city of Jerusalem, which would have been a city smaller than Sandpoint, two and a half million Jews in a city like that, celebrating a Passover meal, to have some of them doing all of that activity in the temple one day and having meals and observing it one day, and to have some of the people observing that on a separate, on the next day, it would have made it very convenient. And so they gladly did that. And that's probably what's going on. There's a second way of explaining maybe what's going on here. And that is that when John speaks of them not being able to celebrate the Passover, that he's not referring to the Passover meal itself, but any one of the seven meals that they had every night that were part of this week-long celebration, which was the Passover. And that these Jewish religious leaders would have been fearful and afraid of not being able to observe any of those nightly feasts for all of the seven days. There's a third explanation, and this one I think is very uh, plausible. The Jews had ways of excusing themselves from certain laws and the observance of certain laws if other things which they deemed more important came up. So they're really fastidious with things, Except, they had these exceptions, right? And so they, they could wear their righteousness on their sleeve by very, being very specific keepers of these, of these ceremonies and these little minutiae of the law. But if something came up, they could kind of get an out. And there was one for the Passover. If something came up on the day that they were to celebrate the Passover, they could legitimately say that they kept them from observing the Passover. Then they would be excused to celebrate it the next night instead. They could get kind of a one-day reprieve. Now, for... Caiaphas and Annas and the religious leaders, what do you think came up on Thursday night that would have kept them from participating in the Passover meal because something more important was going on? What would it have been? It would have been inking the deal with Judas, paying him 30 pieces of silver, and finally seizing their opportunity to arrest Jesus and try him and get him killed. If that is the case, then these religious leaders thought it more important to kill the Passover lamb than to observe the Passover celebration. And that's probably what was going on. Uh, They set all of that aside because they had a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. They had Judas, who was willing to betray Jesus. They had the opportunity. He was there. They knew his location. It was the middle of the night. This was their chance. And that's probably what was going on with the religious leaders. You say, are they really 
that hypocritical. That they would be willing to, to crucify Jesus instead of partaking of the Passover celebration. Don't miss the irony of the hypocrisy that is in verse 28 when it says they didn't enter into the praetorium so that they might not be defiled. This is the same bloodthirsty, power-hungry, covetous, lawless group of men that is crucifying Jesus Christ. And they have arranged mock trials and illegalities. They have mistreated him at every turn. Everything that they have done has been illegal. And now they come up to Pilate's house. But they're not going to step into Pilate's house. Why? Because we don't want to be defiled by stepping into Pilate's house. Meanwhile, Pilate should have been concerned that these monsters defile his residence by even stepping inside. Because these men were wicked. And yet they were using the, the outward observance of the ceremonies and the forms of religion and the structure of their religion in order to excuse the very real wickedness that was going on in their heart. They were crucifying Jesus Christ and trying to kill an innocent man. And meanwhile, they are observing with fastidious meticulousness the ceremonies and the forms of their religion so as not to be ceremonially defiled. That is rank hypocrisy. J.C. Ryle writes this, The Jews were afraid of being defiled by going into a Gentile's house at the very moment when they were doing the devil's work and murdering the prince of life. This, this sentence is an extraordinary example of the false scrupulosity of conscience which a wicked man may keep up about forms and ceremonies and trifling externals in religion at the very time when he is deliberately committing some gross and enormous sin. This, in fact, is the danger of legalism. This is what legalism allows people to do. When we create lists and forms and, and things that we do externally, standards externally, that are not God's standards but are man-made standards, when we do that, we are, in fact, um, using those things as an excuse for all of the wickedness and corruption of our own heart. And this is the danger of what a legalist falls into. Thinking that they are righteous because they have conformed themselves to some external standard or some external list of do's and don'ts, meanwhile excusing all of the wickedness that they hide inside their hearts. It's the danger of legalism. It's also the danger of a works righteous system where we think that our standing before God is determined by how how able we are and how much we conform to outward external standards. And that's exactly what the Pharisees were all about, was the out, outside, external, outward standards and the forms and, and the shape of their religion. I had uh, I grew up in, in a, half of my family was of a Seventh-day Adventist background, and I've shared some of this before. My great-grandmother was a Seventh-day Adventist, and all of her children grew up in that home, and they were forbidden from eating pork. If it never touch a slice of bacon, a BLT was the most unclean thing we could possibly think of. And so all of them conformed to that sort of form of religion and, and, and observing not touching pork or pig or anything like that. And I had, uh, I was with my grandmother, which is one of my great-grandmother's children. I was with my grandmother and took her down to the Coeur d'Alene for, for a doctor's appointment. And we were on the way back through Coeur d'Alene. It was lunchtime and she wanted to stop for lunch. I said, where do you want to stop for lunch? And she said, Red Lobster. Now, I knew that, yes, some of you are laughing because you know exactly. I, I knew the answer to this question before I even asked it, but I asked the question. I said, uh, and what in the world would you eat at Red Lobster? Oh, shrimp and crab and lobster and clams and mussels and oysters. I love all of that stuff. And I said, you, you understand the shellfish is just as unclean as pork. It is not. And I said, it is too. The very same passage which you point to that condemns Pork also condemns all of those other fish that you just rattle off that you eat. It does no such thing. Now, this was a woman who was so fastidious that she would only eat all beef hot dogs. 
Now, if you're going to object to eating a hot dog, it can't be because they put a little bit of pork in there. It has to be because they put a little bit of everything in there. But she would object to eating anything that wasn't a pure beef hot dog. And as far as she was concerned, nothing unclean had ever passed over her lips. Except for every shellfish that she had ever eaten. So this was a, she conformed to all of these outward uh, forms of, uh, of her religion, of the religion that was handed down. These, some of these same people would, would blaspheme, take God's name in vain each and every day, hundreds of times a day, curse like a wounded pirate, disobey the law in its every form without giving any thought to it whatsoever. They would do all of this, but they never had a slice of bacon. See the danger? You, you think that your standing before God is righteous because you have conformed to this thing, and meanwhile it is used as an excuse to excuse all of these other gross things. And I would use every opportunity like that to share with her the reason I can eat pork is number one, because I'm not a Jew. And number two, because Jesus fulfilled those requirements of the law on my behalf and I'm not under the law, but I'm under grace. And I use that as an opportunity to witness to her and share the gospel with her. All right. J.C. Ryle. And by the way, this is exactly Jesus. This, this, this sort of hypocrisy is exactly Jesus' condemnation of the Jews in Matthew 23. When Jesus said this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. See, the minutia, tithe off of my mint. Make sure that I give 10% of my mint. And meanwhile, they were whitewashed tombs with so much corruption and wickedness on the inside, but the externals, they made sure that they had those down to the last jot and the last tittle. J.C. Ryle writes this, The conscience of unconverted men is a very curious part of their moral nature. While in some cases it becomes hardened, seared, and dead until it feels nothing, in others it becomes morbidly scrupulous about the lesser matters of religion. It is no uncommon thing to find people excessively particular about the observance of trifling forms and outward ceremonies while they are the slaves of degrading sins and detestable immoralities. Robbers and murderers in some countries are extremely strict about confession and absolution and prayers to the saints. Fastings and self-imposed austerities in Lent are often followed by excesses of worldliness when Lent is over. There is but a step from Lent to carnival. The attendants at daily services in the morning are not infrequently the patrons of balls and theaters at night. All these are symptoms of spiritual disease and a heart secretly dissatisfied. Men who know they are wrong in one direction often struggle to make things right by excess of zeal in another direction. This very zeal is their condemnation. End quote. I think that's profound. I'm not trying to disparage any one particular religion with this, but I have seen the most wicked people cross themselves like this, thinking that that is absolving them from something they are about to do or have done. Some outward form that gives them some absolution. This was the Pharisees. Murdering the Son of God, but we're not going to, be, not going to go into a Gentile's home. I talk about weeding out a gnat and swallowing a camel, right? Well, who is this Pilate? And we're introduced to him in verse 28. Pilate went out and he said to them, what accusation do you bring against this man? This is the first time we mention, we run across Pilate in the Gospel of John, so he's worth something of a, a little bit at least of an introduction. Pilate was the fifth governor of Judea. He was appointed by the Caesar Tiberius in 26 AD. He held the position for 10 years, for 10 years. Now, Pilate, according to history and according to the gospel accounts and everything we read about Pilate, Pilate was on the one hand a cynical, critical, uh, scrupulous, brutal, bloodthirsty, decisive man. 
On the other hand, there are things about Pilate where he was feckless and reckless and vacillating between opinions. Uh, we also read that Pilate was the type of person who, though he knew what to do, knew what was right to do in a circumstance, he would often fear and cowered away from doing it because he feared what people would think. So Pilate was the type of man who on some occasions would do what he did, not because it was right. In fact, he would sometimes do the wrong thing simply to curry favor with people and to get people to like him. And then there were other times when he didn't care what people thought. He would be brutal. He would be violent. He would be dictatorial and just do whatever came to his mind, even though it was the most unpopular thing possible. So he was a vacillating and feckless person that kind of went with the wind, sometimes doing what everybody wanted to gain their approval, sometimes just saying, look, i got a phone and a pen. I can do whatever I want. Nobody can tell me differently. That's the type of man that Pilate was. Completely feckless and completely unpredictable. And in fact, it was that fecklessness and that unpredictability and his brutality that got him deposed. And in 36 A.D., Tiberius removed him from office and brought him back to Rome And while he was being transported from Jerusalem to Rome, Tiberius died. Caesar died. And so what happened to Pilate, nobody knows. In fact, there's a big mystery as to whether some accounts say that Pilate was tried and then he was executed. Some accounts say that he was uh, tried and then exiled. And some accounts say that he committed suicide. History doesn't really know what became of Pilate other than it was the type of of, of indecision and uh, corruption, wickedness that we see in the Gospels that ended up costing him his office and most likely his life. So that is Pilate. Now look what he asked them in verse 29. Pilate went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? Pilate wasn't about to just try Jesus uh, without some sort of a formal, uh, a formal accusation or a formal charge. It seems as if the Jews um, did not expect that Pilate was going to ask them for an accusation because the answer that they give is, is really nonspecific and general and it really doesn't nail anything down. They just accuse him of wrongdoing. So it seems as if they weren't expecting to actually give him an accusation, but Pilate asked for one. And all the way through the narrative of here and in the other Gospels, it seems as if Pilate is trying to get Jesus off. He goes in and he asks Jesus questions. He goes out and he gets the charges and he counters their charges with what Jesus says and comes into Jesus. Do you hear what they're saying about you? Aren't you going to answer these things? And then he offers to trade, give them Jesus instead of Barabbas, and they choose Barabbas. All the way through this, Pilate seems to want to wash his hands and get out of it and not deal with this and try and get Jesus off and get him released. And in fact, Pilate would later on say, take him and, and try him according to your law. It doesn't seem like Pilate wants to be involved in this. And yet this is the irony of one of the ironies of this whole account. It was Pilate who gave the order that they use Roman soldiers to arrest Jesus in the garden anyway. They couldn't have brought the Roman soldiers into the garden without Pilate's approval. So how is it the Pilate doesn't know what the charges are? How is it the Pilate doesn't know who this person is? I think Pilate knew who this person was. I think something happened between Pilate dispatching the troops to arrest Jesus the previous evening, and this morning when they showed up with Jesus, something happened during that period of time to make Pilate second guess this. What was it? According to Matthew, Pilate's wife had a dream regarding this man. You think she might have woke up in the morning and said, look, I have nothing to do with him. That's what Matthew records that she said. You think that Pilate might have heard about Jesus and his miracle working powers, and as he's laying there at night after dispatching the troops to arrest him, that Pilate's thinking through this, and his wife wakes up and he has this dream, and all of that is causing Pilate to give some second thought to what he is about to do. I think that that's indeed what happened. And he woke up the next morning and and suddenly he's not just going to rubber stamp this. He wants accusations. And so he asked them, what are their accusations? Let's move on to their accusations. Verse 30, they answered and said to him, if this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. That's specific. Why'd you bring him here? Because he did something bad. Mommy spanked him. 
Why? He did something bad. He just needs a spanking. It's just as general and nonspecific as you can possibly get. It, it seems as if the Jews were taken aback by the, by the very question itself. They, they're not even, they don't even seem like they're prepared to, to offer an, ac- an official accusation. Either that or they know that all of the accusations that they are, pre- are prepared to give, none of them would stand up in a Roman court. He thinks he's the Son of God. So what? A lot of people think they're God. You want me to execute a guy because he thinks he's God? That's not going to stand up in a Roman court. He, he, he's done miracles that we don't like. He raised Lazarus from the dead. He, he's telling people things about us that we don't like. He said woe to us. I mean, they've got nothing, they've got nothing that they can offer to Pilate that would stand up in a court. And, and the Jews now are just kind of buying time. I mean, if he weren't evil, we wouldn't have brought him to you. And so then Pilate forces their hand, take him then and try him according to your own law in your own courts. They had tried that, right? What are the Jews trying to do? They're trying to wash their hands of this whole thing. They know that they're acting not on behalf of the nation, but on behalf of their own interests. And the last thing they want to be seen as is responsible for all of this is they want to just push him off to Pilate, let Pilate do the dirty work, and they've turned him over to Pilate, and they could be happy with that and just let the Jews do their business, or the Gentiles do their business, Pilate kill him, and they could be done with it. That's what they want. But Pilate says, you try them according to your, to your own law, your own courts. And the Jews, look in verse 31, the Jews said to him, we're not permitted to put anyone to death. Now, what is Pilate's accusation? Try him according to your own law. What is he getting at there? What, what is, or sorry, not his accusation, but what is his play there? I think Pilate is forced in their hand. Uh, John, to give, a, to give some sort of, a, of an accusation, John Calvin suggests at this point that Pilate was taunting them. That Pilate wanted them to say, we're not permitted to put anyone to death. Because when they said, we are not permitted to put anyone to death, you know what they were admitting? That they didn't rule themselves. That they were under Roman rule. And so Pilate, being the feckless, sort of power-hungry guy that he was, why don't you try him according to your own law? Oh, that's right, you can't. Right? You need us. You need me to do your dirty work. It's almost as if Pilate is trying to elicit that response from them as a confession that they didn't rule themselves and they couldn't rule themselves. And sort of a taunting. At this point, though John doesn't record it, there seem to have been some other accusations that were made. Now, it says earlier in the passage, I skipped over this detail, it says that Pilate went out to the religious leaders. Remember, they're outside and Jesus is inside. Now, this up, up till this last week, this whole trial before Pilate, what I had pictured in my mind was Pilate and Jesus and the accusers there in the same room. Even though I've read the passage before, it never clicked in my mind that the Jewish leaders were outside. And so this whole trial, Pilate is running back and forth. He, he goes out to the religious leaders, hears their accusation, comes back in. And he asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus gave him an answer, and he went back out, and they accused him of more things, and Pilate came back in, and it appears from the rest of the Gospels that on more than one occasion, Pilate was trying to get to this issue of, are you the king of the Jews? And so, in and out, Pilate is going, Jesus inside, the religious leaders outside, and he's relaying accusations to Jesus of what Pilate, or what the Jews were saying, and getting their response to what Jesus is saying. He's acting as an intermediary, a go-between, I'm not even trying to pronounce that word again, a go-between between these two parties. According to the other gospel records, Luke and Mark, there were other accusations that were made by the Jewish leaders. Let me give them to you. Luke says in Luke chapter 23, they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is a king. So Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? 
Now, Luke doesn't mention the going in and out, but he would have had to have because the religious leaders were outside, John tells us, and Jesus was inside the praetorium. So Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, It is as you say. Then Pilate said to the chief priest and to the crowds, had to go back out again. I find no guilt in this man. But they kept on insisting, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, stating, uh, starting from Galilee and even as far as this place. And when Pilate heard it, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself was also in Jerusalem at the time. So Pilate, right, trying to wash his hands, get, push him off to Herod. Maybe Herod will let him go, and then I'll be able to use that as an excuse. That seems to be Pilate's motivation. According to Mark 15, Pilate questioned him, Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, it is as you say. The chief priest began to accuse him harshly. Then Pilate questioned him again, saying, do you not answer? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so Pilate was amazed. This is quite a quite an exchange that is going on, uh, quite a long trial. Going out, what's your accusation? He's an evildoer. You've got to give me something more than that. Well, they accuse him of claiming to be king of the Jews. So he comes back in, are you a king? Yes, I am. And just as you say, and they, he goes back out. This is still something you should try him for in your own courts. Pilate still has nowhere to go with this. And then they begin to accuse him harshly of all kinds of things, and all kinds of stirring up crowds. And he comes back in, are you sure? Are you really a king? You, you're a king? Probably asking on more than one occasion, more than one way, trying to get to that issue. And they accused him of all of these things. And Jesus, he says to Jesus, don't you hear all of these things that they're saying against you? Do you have any answer for any of this? And Jesus remained silent. Like a sheep before its ears is silent. So he opened not his mouth and didn't answer any of that. Knowing that at any moment he could stop the whole trial. The fiasco. He could stop the whole thing. But he didn't do that. So he remained silent. And Pilate was amazed at this. And then he sent him off to Herod. Now, all of this, verse 32 says, the exchange between Pilate and the crowds and between Pilate and Jesus, all of this was to fulfill the word of Jesus, which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. Now, John is saying that all of this is happening so as to fulfill Scripture. And now the question becomes, what element of Scripture, what element of Jesus' death does all of this serve to ensure the fulfillment of? And I think that there are two things. One of them is in John. One of them is in another gospel. There are two elements to the death of Jesus that this whole exchange and the Jews turning him over to Pilate would ensure it would be fulfilled. Number one, Jesus' prediction that his death would be at the hands of Gentiles and not of Jews. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 18 and 19, Jesus said, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him, and on the third day he will rise again. Into the hands of whom? Gentiles. Now, the Jews could put people to death. In fact, they did it in Acts chapter 7, right? They put Stephen to death. They, they did that. They did put people to death. But legally they couldn't do it, but they did do it. But they didn't want to do it in Jesus' case. And so they handed him off to Pilate, hoping that Pilate would do it. And so this fulfilled that element of Jesus' prediction, that he would die at the hands of Gentiles and not of Jews. Though that doesn't mean the Jews aren't culpable or blamable for it. They are, because it, they have more blame, because they handed him over to Pilate. But the second element of Jesus' death that would be fulfilled by this is that Jesus would die by crucifixion, not by stoning. When the Jews executed people, how did they execute them? They stoned them. Romans crucified. Jews stoned. So in John chapter 12, Jesus said, And if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. And he was saying this, John says, to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. So Jesus spoke of being lifted up from the earth, indicating what type of death he would die, that crucifixion. If Jesus had been executed by the Jews, he would have been thrown down into a hole and stoned. But he wasn't going to be thrown down. He was going to be lifted up. And so that's what John has in mind when he says all of this happened to fulfill the word that Jesus spoke concerning his death. Not only that he would be executed by Gentiles, but that he would be lifted up from the earth. 
not killed by Jews by being thrown down into a hole. And so what does all of this tell us? It tells us that in, in all of this, again, the Lord Jesus Christ is sovereign over all of it. It is all happening to fulfill Scripture, to fulfill God's promise. God promised to send a Redeemer who would die on a cross and be pierced for our transgressions. He would be bruised for our iniquities. Our chastisement would fall upon Him. And by His stripes, by His beatings, and by His scourging, we ourselves are spiritually healed. So all of this serves to fulfill God's Word, to accomplish the plan of redemption. It is all under His control. It's all under His sovereignty. He's in control of all of it. That's what it reminds us. And all of it is happening exactly according to plan. So all of this might look like chaos and all of these different players coming together and fulfilling different aspects of this, but it's all written. It's all planned. It's all purposed. Everything is exactly as it should be. And all of it would end up fulfilling God's intention to send His Son to save His people from their sins. In a few moments, we're going to observe communion together. As we do, I want to remind you that there is nothing about the form or the shape of this religious activity that in any way atones for your sin or the wickedness of your heart. Don't think that in partaking of communion that you are absolving yourself of iniquity or getting forgiveness of any kind. You don't. What gives us forgiveness or grants us forgiveness is the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross and His payment for our sin. That's what communion pictures. You don't appropriate forgiveness to yourself through communion. You observe communion because you have been forgiven, because you have come to the Lord Jesus Christ, repented of your sins, and trusted in Christ for salvation. That is why you observe communion. So if you are not a believer, I would ask you to let the elements pass from before you. There, Don't partake of communion because you're eating and drinking judgment to yourself. And you don't want to do that. Don't eat and drink judgment to yourself. If you are a Christian then and you have sin in your heart, the answer is not to partake of communion. It is to deal with the sin in your heart so you can partake of communion. Because again, there is nothing about in observing communion together, the Lord's Supper together, that absolves us from sin. We should never think that in doing this, that we are doing like the Pharisees did, keeping ourselves from being defiled, observing the outward forms while we are involved in the most hideous of inward wickedness. So we will pray together, confess our sins one uh, to each other to the Lord, and uh, then we will partake together. Let's bow our heads. Our gracious Father, You are merciful to us in Your grace to give to us a sacrifice for our sins and to provide for uh, our cleansing and our forgiveness the atonement that we needed. And we thank You that Christ has done that work for us and that there is nothing left to be done. We know that we can fall into the same trap that the Pharisees fell into, the religious leaders, in thinking that in observing outward forms that we are hiding from You the, uh, the intentions and the condition of our heart. And so we ask, Lord, that You would forgive us of that. May we not think that. Open our eyes to the reality of the sinfulness of our own hearts so that we might confess that to You and receive forgiveness and to know the, the blessing of forgiveness and of fellowship with You. We thank You that You forgive us not only of the sins which we are aware of and that we commit but that and, and knowingly, but also those sins which we don't even know because we have not had those revealed to us. We have sins in our lives that we're not even aware of because we are still in these wretched bodies and still such sinners. Give us grace, we pray, to shun sin, to cast it away from us, to hate it in its every form, and give to you, us, your people, a desire for holiness and for righteousness. Glorify your name amongst your people, your church, and give us grace, we pray, to pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Thank you for the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. 
Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.